Hello and welcome to Frank Skinner's Poetry Podcast. This week I want to look at a collection of poetry from 2018. It's called Green Noise and it's by the English poet Jean Sprackland. Actually from Burton-on-Trent or its environs, I believe. And a name that you see on so many poetry prize shortlists, etc. So, I'll be honest, I've only recently discovered Jean Sprackland to my shame, but also to my delight, because it's great when you find a new poet and you think, oh, I love this. Green Noise. I'm always a bit low to say what the theme of a collection of poetry is, but... I would say certainly one of the major themes of Green Noise is the juxtaposition of the modern world with nature, history and that deep sense of place that folklore and tradition can produce. The first poem in the collection is called April and the first thing I notice about the poem April by Jean Sprackland is that it is light if not utterly devoid of punctuation and I think there's an explanation for that which will become hopefully apparent. I'm going to give you the first stanza so this is April spring is springing Machine of spring with all your levers thrown to max. Clouds in ripped clothes and sheep trailing afterbirth. Where last week's buds sucked blue juice from the dusk. Now the branches swollen, priapic. Cherry bling and hawthorn sex bed smell. Motorway hedgerows on thrust. Electric rape fields. Some of you might have that uh, contemporary poetry response where you think, oh no, it's not rhyming and I can't find any proper rhythm. Just bear with me. I think there is tremendous beauty and truth in the poetry of Jean Spratland, and it's going to be okay if you'll just hold my hand. So it begins, machine of spring with all your levers thrown to max. And in a collection which, as I say, the theme of the clash between technology and the modern world versus green pastoral countryness, that opening phrase, machine of spring gets us going right away. So the speaker is responding to nature's awakening as if it was a machine. Maybe that's how we've been socialised in the 21st century. Everything is seen through the technological filter. Machine of spring with all your levers thrown to max. But what a great image of spring when everything seems to be on full. Every uh, fader is up at number 10. Machine of spring with all your levers thrown to max. And I think that's why there's no punctuation in this poem, because it's about a out-of-control 
nature that is so full of life, new life, that punctuation would just feel like a restraint. Um, there is punctuation in her other poems, if you're thinking uh, I'm reading too much into this. Machine of spring with all your levers thrown to max. By the way, if ever you're thinking he's reading too much into this, you might be listening to the wrong podcast. Machine of spring with all your levers thrown to max. Clouds in ripped clothes and sheep trailing after birth. Now, a phrase which I'm sure I've quoted in these podcasts before is Tennyson's nature read in tooth and claw. And we're getting that early on. First of all, spring is a machine, but now clouds in ripped clothes. Those sort of raggedy ribbon shaped clouds that look like they've been roughly torn. And sheep trailing Afterbirth. It's a sort of sexual devastation left behind by spring. And it sounds darker now. It sounds more visceral. And then this sudden change of tone. And it's our old friend Iambic Pentameter again with a couple of slight variations. But listen to this. Where last week's buds sucked blue juice from the dusk. Now, I think that's lovely and it's deliberately lovely and it, the reason it's so lovely is because Gene Sprackland, I'm sure, wants it to contrast with all this craziness. Machine of spring with all your levers thrown to max clouds in ripped clothes. Disturbing image in many ways and sheep trailing after birth. It's like sex gone slightly crazy. But last week, so before... Spring really sprung, where last week's buds sucked blue juice from the dusk. And it's a beautiful image, and I think it's talking about nights getting ever more lighter. So the buds, the buds that are just beginning, just last week, they seemed quite gentle phenomenon, the buds. They sucked blue juice from the dusk. Because that blueness, that dark blue night, steadily got less and less as we got further into the year. Nights got lighter, but we've all said the nights are getting lighter, but how many of us have said anything like where last week's bud sucked blue juice from the dusk? I mean, it is just beautiful. And it means that just last week there seemed to be a calm balanced, rhythmic, poetic order to the world. And now, and in fact, the next line says, now the branch is swollen, priapic. So the branch now heavy with these buds and priapic, it's phallic. It, it's, it's become macho, heavily sexualized. Cherry bling and hawthorn sex bed smell. Again, it's that mix of modern world and the old. The hawthorn, which is steeped in folklore associated with fairies, used in wedding rituals and for healing as well, I think. But here, its berries are a cherry bling, 
bright red, garish, and it has a sex bed smell, uh, like a sort of a natural expression of Tracy Emin's bed, I suppose. Its flowers were said in the olden times, as they used to call them, to smell of the plague, to smell actually of decaying corpses. But now that smell, in the light of all this swollen, priapic horniness, is uh, reinterpreted as post-coital. This isn't uh, sweet-smelling nature. It's dirty and recklessly driven by lost. Okay, the next line. Motorway hedgerows on thrust. So we're reminded of the modern industrial world here, but even nature there, that sort of of out-of-place nature that you see on the motorway or at the side of the motorway, they're on thrust as well. And then I find this a disturbing image electric rape fields now rape obviously is that crop which you see bright bright yellow in fields so they do glow so it is kind of electric and this whole first stanza is that combination of the natural and the technological machine of spring levers thrown to max motorway hedgerows electric rape fields but in the light of ripped clothes and trailing afterbirth and the branches swollen priapic and the hawthorn sex bed smell and the hedgerows on thrust rape fields I find it hard to avoid and I'm sure it's not accidental that the word rape has got all sorts of other darker and more vile connotations and that is how nature is being expressed in this not like a pretty birthday card nature but a real dark out of control thrusting sex bed smelling swollen force right next stanza Your levers are jammed and nothing can pull them back. So that's going back to that original idea of the levers thrown to Max. But now we're told that they're jammed. It really is on full forward thrust and we can't do anything about it. Your levers are jammed and nothing can pull them back. Not now, not frost not squall. So frost is too late for frost. Squall, as in wind, rain, storm. Nothing's going to stop spring. And here, the next line, I think, a a beautiful image of um, the city and nature. City gutters clogged with blossom. We've all seen that, haven't we? It's just a beautiful image. I meant to read the whole stanza. What am I doing? I'll do the whole stanza. Your levers are jammed and nothing can pull them back. Not now, not frost, not squall. City gutters clogged with blossom. Muddy ponds spuming with cannibal tadpoles. The long blinding days. Your bashed clock. The violent small hours. Magpie clacking at the robin's nest. So the levers are jammed, nothing can pull them back. It's going to happen whatever you do 
it's spring. Nothing can pull them back, not now, not frost, not squall. City gutters clogged with blossom. The idea that nature is taking over all this man-made stuff. Muddy ponds spuming with cannibal tadpoles. Spuming as in sort of frothing up, foaming. And cannibal tadpoles, tadpoles do apparently uh, eat each other in their um, starving frenzy. As I understand it from looking into this only recently, this is uh, only done in desperation. It's not a regular thing. But in the midst of all this mad craving, it seems to work here. The long blinding days. Yeah, it's getting longer as as we saw the bud socked blue juice from the dusk. It's getting lighter for longer your bashed clock now what does that mean i love it but what does it mean i'll tell you what i think it means it means spring is awake remember this whole poem is not just about april it's addressed to it your levers is the terminology and your bashed clock Spring has woken up and violently hit the alarm clock. You can hear those stressed monosyllables, your bashed clock, which sounds like uh, April bashing its ringing alarm clock and now it's awake and ready for action. But also, I think, a clock, as you may know, is that thing that happens to a dandelion when all the seeds start to appear, when it goes into that big grey fluff ball. So your bashed clock also sounds like an explosion of seed, a distribution of seed, and this whole poem seems to be talking about that. Seed is splattering everywhere. Maybe it's our bashed clock as well. Maybe it's just that thing of waking up in the morning and everything's lighter and warmer and everything is happening. The violent small hours. Now, to me, I live next to uh, an area of heathland in London and in the night I hear some terrible noises. I always imagine it's foxes tearing the throats out of geese it's got that terrible scream sometimes it's foxes having sex so the violent small hours i have lay in bed and heard that even in central london just because i live next to an area of green if you live in the country you must hear a lot of nature red in tooth and claw in the wee small hours of the morning and the last phrase of this stanza magpie clacking at the robin's nest and magpies you may know again are uh, in the habit of sometimes killing the babies of other birds so magpie clacking at the robin's nest is uh, another nature read in tooth and claw image i think the speaker here I think Gene Sprackland is trying to get across this idea 
that the contrast between screeching, powerful machinery and nature is maybe not as massive as we think. She's getting away from the chocolate box photographs of gentle pastoral scenes and moving towards the cannibal tadpole, the violent small hours and the magpie hovering ravenously at the side of the robin's nest. Last stanza of April by Jean Sprackland. And us lying open-eyed all night, breathing in the green noise of pollen, hearing the long bones of the trees stretch and crack, wondering, will you ever power down, or is this it now? Wondering, what can any death amongst us mean to you? And will we make it through to summer, or is this it now? Okay, so and us. So now we're taking the focus slightly away from April, from spring, and bringing it to our response to April and spring. The speakers uh, and the speakers plus one, by the sounds of it. And us lying open-eyed all night. Now, I can't read that without thinking of the brilliant description of April at the beginning of the general prologue to the Canterbury Tales by Geoffrey Chaucer, where he talks... I'm going to do now a sort of Middle English reading of Chaucer, very, very brief. But I taught the Canterbury Tales at A-level at a College of Further Education, and I did the whole thing reciting... Middle English, even though I had only a small smattering of Middle English from my original English degree. So if there's any Middle English scholars listening, uh, you may spot some errors in this, but um, I think the important thing is to make it sound a bit English and strange. And small fowls macken melody that sleepen all the neat with open e. So, small fowls make a melody. Birds sing that sleep and all the neat with open ear. They sleep all the night with open eye. So, these birds sleep with at least one eye open. I think probably both is what's being said here. Certainly in Chaucer's time, people believed that nightingales sang day and night in the mating season and didn't really sleep at all because they were so, like the first two stanzas of this poem, they were so terrifyingly horny. The general message, I think, in Chaucer in that section is that birds in April are always up for it. And the speaker lying open-eyed all night, I think that has to be deliberately reminding us of the opening to Chaucer's prologue, to the Canterbury Tales, when he talks about exactly the same themes as this, obviously with a bit less machinery. Okay. 
And us lying open-eyed all night, breathing in the green noise of pollen. Now, whenever you're reading a, a poem from a collection and the name of the collection appears in the poem, you always think, well, if the poet chose this phrase for a title for the whole book, it must be important. And I think green noise, it sounds contradictory to us. But it's sort of partly about the idea of the countryside becoming louder because of technology, because of the modern world encroaching, but also about when nature gets this full on, when nature's levers are thrown to max, you can almost hear it's central core it's greenness you know that andrew marvell poem the garden which i have referred to before and he talks about nature then and a, a green thought well what he actually says i'm going to do the quote rather than chop my probably paraphrased remembrance of it he talks about how nature can become a sort of profound meditation and the actual quote is annihilating all that's made to a green thought in a green shade you may be able to hear the police siren i left the window open because i thought this was a poem that needed to be read with a sense of alfresco about it okay annihilating all that's made to a green thought in a green shade so wiping out all the things around us and turning it into a sort of a meditation about the very core greenness of nature and i think this poem is saying that the green noise of nature shows that it's not all blissful and meditative but it's also brutish and disruptive and a little bit scary but here spring so potent you can actually hear it breathing in the green noise of pollen hearing the long bones of the trees stretch and crack can you hear that growth wondering will you ever power down or is this it now so is this going to go on forever wondering what can any death amongst us mean to you and will we make it through to summer or is this it now this feels to me very much like night thinking in this last stanza the speaker and whoever else constitutes the os of the first line of this stanza, they're doing some sort of night thinking. And if you ever do any night thinking, I did some only last night, when it's dark and you're lying alone staring into the blackness, everything seems much more dramatic, much more major. And I think you do have thoughts like... Um, is this it now? So is this what nature's always going to be like? 
What does any death amongst us mean to you? You are such a potent and terrifying life force. We seem trivial, us human beings, next to your mighty marching forth. Will we make it through to summer or is this it now? Is this how it's always going to be? And it, it feels like night thinking to me. This idea that this feverish desperation of nature will never end. So much spouting and thrusting and life and death loses its meaning amidst all this stuff. That's what I think um, April, the first poem in Green Noise by Jean Sprackland, is about. I want to do another poem. People say to me, oh, why don't you just do one? That's enough for us. Well, it might be, but it isn't enough for me. And part of the motivation of this podcast, the greater part, obviously, is for your pleasure and information. But I'd like to retain about 15% for my own self-indulgence. Ergo, I'd like to discuss one part of a sequence within Green Noise called The Lost Villages. It's a ten-part sequence. It has ten poems. And um, it's brilliant. It's about, well, The Lost Villages. It's about what we've lost in the countryside, what has gone, the people, the traditions and what it's been replaced by. So you get, for example, in I think the first part of the sequence is a, uh, a poem called A Bend in the Lane, and you get white altarpiece erupting from the sunlit field. And that thing when you're in the countryside and you see something and you think, oh my God, what did that used to be? What did that used to be part of? How much... Did it mean to people? I get it in the city as well. You know, when you see a house being demolished, it's sort of half done and you can see the living room that was, that mark on the wall where the uh, shelves used to be, which always reminds me of those Mark Rothko paintings at the Tate Modern. I'm um, meandering. I'm going back to Gene Spratland straight away. Don't panic. I just want to give you a sort of flavour of what um, the Lost Villages sequence is like. There's a poem called Arms in which, um, as it says, a strange tale of a girl, a cart, a stranger and also a demon whose dwelling place is a well and that well, I quote, would echo with laughter, they say, and a jubilation of chains and jubilation of chains is italicized which makes me think it's a quotation and there's a few quotations kicking around in this and I love that because it makes me think that Gene Sprackland is fascinated by a sort of rustic history and I want it to appear like tiny gems in her work. It excites me and it makes me go searching for more. One more example before I talk about number nine in the sequence. There's one called The Ghosts. This is, I love this. So the ghosts of previous villagers go searching, it seems, to find out 
how they died. Maybe that's some necessary knowledge you need when you go to the other side. Listen to this, some exciting place names and then just a fabulous metaphor. To Tanhorn, Cold Eaton, Hoon, each name a drawer pulled and slammed for something no longer kept there. Oh, man. I mean, ghosts searching the countryside for some deep knowledge of how they left this world. And the place names, each name, I'm going to say it again and with relish, each name a drawer pulled and slammed for something no longer kept there. Fantastic. Okay. Solar Field. That's what the ninth poem in the sequence is called. I'm going to give you the first stanza straight off. The field is mirrors now. The sky can look at itself all day. The people are done with ploughing, with woodcutting, done with open-air preaching, witness, unlawful assembly. Right. So, solar field. A field just covered in solar panels is the idea. And... Straight away, that field, the field is mirrors now. The now, I think, showing that it's a modern thing. It's not like it was. And mirrors, the field, immediately you think soft, natural, productive. Mirrors, hard, cold, man-made, vain, perhaps. And also, they feel so silent, this technology. I don't know if, um, if those solar panels hum, but I've never heard it. The field is mirrors now. The sky can look at itself all day because the sky looks down on this mirrored roof on the field. And the idea of the sky looking at itself all day makes nature, the sky in this image, seem to be suddenly rendered vain and idle. And then we get a sense of how it used to be. The people are done with ploughing, with woodcutting, done with open-air preaching, witness, unlawful assembly. And I think those are great images of a sort of disordered, varied, troublesome, colourful humanity as it was in those rustic communities, if rustic is the right word. I recently read a book by Jonathan Healy called The Blazing World, which is a study of 17th century uh, political and religious unrest. It's fantastic. And this poem feels like it could have oozed out of the pages of Blazing World like sap. Because there's so much stuff about open-air preaching and witness. A witness is when you give witness to your religious revelation. Unlawful assembly and the mix between these unorthodox religions and the breaking of the law and political protest is all mixed up 
together. Next stanza. No workers come here from warehouse or distribution centre. No rebels gather at the stand of beach. In common cause against encroaching tyrants which would grind our flesh upon the whetstone of poverty. So, no workers come here from warehouse or distribution centre. This is a modern byproduct of the solar field. Is I don't think you need many people to operate it. I don't, you know, I'm not pretending to be an expert on this, but it's not like a factory or a farm. And so, no workers come here from warehouse or distribution centre. This is the modern workers. They don't. It doesn't need a throbbing crowd around it and that's why i think this strange silence in a book called green noise there seems to be a horrible silence about this solar field it's lost its hobob it's lost its unlawful assembly its fanatical religious witness its open air preaching it's been replaced by this cold hard silence but even in the modern context no workers come here from warehouse or distribution center so even then it's lost a sort of bit of humanity a good example of this which i only recently discovered is that amazon the mighty amazon company call their distribution centers fulfillment centers i mean that is a collection of poetry right there just that fact so you go to a fulfillment center to get your stock okay no workers come here from warehouse or distribution center no rebels gather at the stand of beach so then we've switched back again to that past i think it feels very 17th century to me that might be because I've just read Jonathan Heal is the Blazing World. But no, it, you'll see. I'll back it up in a minute. No rebels gather at the stand of beach. A stand is like a group. And often people would gather. These religious and political meetings would happen at something like a stand of beach because it was a significant place, a place that you could identify. We'll see you at the stand of beach. We're talking beech trees, obviously, in common cause against, and then we go into italics to a quote, in common cause, so all together, against encroaching tyrants which would grind our flesh upon the whetstone of poverty. And as I said earlier, Gene Sprackland, like the jubilation of chains, enjoys quoting contemporary contemporary from that time from the 17th century she enjoys quoting that it gives a richness to her own fabulous use of language in common cause against encroaching tyrants which would grind our flesh upon the whetstone of poverty that is clearly a political speaker saying that these tyrants would grind our flesh upon the whetstone of poverty. So like grinding um, a knife, I guess, against a stone, that's what will happen to our flesh. We will be cruelly treated as if we were just tools 
for manufacturing something which will make a lot of money for someone else and nothing or little or nothing for us. I um, looked up this quote and it seemed familiar to me and that is because in the blazing world there is the story of Captain Pouch. Captain Pouch was a uh, working class man who became a sort of political agitator during the Midlands Rising of 1607 and Jean Sprackland is from the Midlands so she may have been particularly interested in this. He was a, a leveller. The levellers fought against enclosure. Enclosure was um, basically rich people seized common land and took it for themselves and put up fences and hedges and generally enclosed it and the levellers levelled those hedges and fences. Later it's meaning broadened to mean a more general sort of embryonic socialism but in the early 17th century it was about regaining land that had been taken from the people. I'll offer you a modern parallel if I may. I go on a lot of walking holidays and I go on public footpaths and occasionally you'll get to a field and it says Bullin Field in a big sign and you think well thanks for telling me that but this is a public footpath. I know this has got nothing to do with poetry or has it? I think in a way it has. It feels to me like a profoundly on poetic thing to make a public footpath unpassable. And often there isn't even a bull in the field. It's just, I don't really want you in here. So, um, oh, yet, I, did I tell you that it's a quote from a, <laughs> it's a quote from a man called Captain Pouch, who, yes, was a political leader and carried this big leather pouch. And that was how he got his name. And he said what was in it would, was like a superpower thing that would uh, champion and sustain the working classes and when it was finally uh, opened, when he was captured, it was uh, a bit of cheese. And his argument was that is all your working person needs, that and their fighting spirit. OK, third stanza. The people are done with the harrow and done with the stook and done with coupling in the lee of the hedge. The field is mirrors now. And if the hawk still ripples overhead, she sees first the muscular shock of the wings and then the scale of her empty precincts and palaces. So the people are done with the harrow and done with the stuck old agricultural ways. The harrow is one of those wooden frames with big teeth on it that you drag over the land and the stuck is the uh, the stacking of uh, sheaves, a manual act that was um, basically uh, replaced by the combine harvester. Uh, this has got much more agricultural history than I expected, but I think that's where Gene Spratland takes you. So the people are done, the people, those those people... People like Captain Pouch, the people who took part in those 
open-air preaching and unlawful assembly events. The people are done with the harrow and done with the stook and done with coupling in the lee of the hedge, done with having sex in the shelter of the hedge. It, it, that harks back to that spring poem again. There's something natural and raw and real and human and special about that, something unrestrained and unconfined, like that common land that was taken up and fenced off. Incidentally, it was hawthorn that was often used to enclose land in the early 17th century, sort of living metaphor of money-led practicalities using something associated with throbbing, blingish nature and magic and then reducing it to a thorny wall. Is that what happened to the field that was given to gathering solar energy? Was that economics uh, and its resulting technology battering down things natural? Well, that's one for you environmentalists to uh, discuss, I think. And the next line, anyway, says... Again, the field is mirrors now. What a contrast. People coupling in the lee of the hedge. People having sex in the open air. Quickly followed by the field is mirrors now. And if the hawk still ripples overhead, she sees first the muscular shock of the wings and then the scale of her empty precincts and palaces. So the field is mirrors now is, is, a, a, is a repetition of the opening of this poem. And if the hawk still ripples overhead, so it might not, when it sees this alien field, it was used to seeing an open field looking for small animals for its prey, and now it's seen something very modern and very alienating. And if... The hawk still ripples overhead. She sees first the muscular shock of the wing. So first she sees her own splendour, which she won't have seen before, probably. And then the scale of her empty precincts and palaces. And so she sees her specialness, if you like, her muscular shock of the wings. And then sees how small she is, sees how empty her domain is, the sky. And after that quick flash of her beauty, she suddenly is minuscule, downsized, reduced by staring into this mirrored field. She would have studied the details of the earth below her because that's how she lives but now, in a world turned upside down, which was a phrase used a lot in the 17th century to signify sudden change, a, a sudden wrenching of the natural towards the unnatural. Here a hawk looks down on the sky. Her world is uh, visibly upside down and her precincts and palaces as it says, her exclusive areas, her realm is now grounded and reduced, brought down. It suddenly, that realm, the sky, 
seems empty and fake, just a synthetic version of nature. Yes, those are some of my thoughts on these two poems by Gene Spratland. But, you know, I know I always say this, but Green Noise, the whole collection, you should wallow in because there's so much good stuff, so many exciting ideas, so much inventive use of language. What's not to like? Read Green Noise by Gene Spratland. Thanks for listening to Frank Skinner's Poetry Podcast. Don't forget to follow so you never miss an episode. And you can also catch me every Saturday at 8am on Absolute Radio. There'll be less poetry in that, but more jokes. See you next week.